These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last week, we began the Amorite period with something largely innovative, a creation story focusing on a god who is both wholly new to our narrative and the patron deity of the era's dominant city, Babylon, the god Marduk. But you may recall from last episode that the gods seemed quite interested in who was holding the Tablet of Destinies, an item that wasn't much elaborated on, though the storyteller made sure to let us know who was holding it at any given time. Today, we're going to look a bit more at this Tablet of Destinies, in part because we have another action-filled adventure story that follows the artifact, but also because it is connected to the character of the Amorite people, showing their Sumerian influences, their unique Semitic additions to the culture stew, and heavily influencing their descendant people, including us today through their impact on the Bible. Just a quick recap for those who may have fallen asleep during the last episode. The universe was created last episode by Tiamat and Apsu. Then they had a bunch of children, and Tiamat and the children had a little war. From out of nowhere, Tiamat had a particular artifact called the Tablet of Destinies, which she gave to her commanding general. When that general was killed, the tablet was picked up in the battle by Marduk and handed over to Anu, Marduk's grandfather and the senior most of the Anunnaki great gods. And there it sits at the beginning of our tale in An's possession. By the condescending grace of Marduk, according to the Babylonians, though by his own right as eldest, according to most other interpretations of the faith. But what is the Tablet of Destinies, and where did it come from? Well, the origin of it is never stated outright, but it appears to have been created along with the creation of the world, hence why it would have been in the hands of Tiamat, mother of all things. Physically, it seems to be basically just a stone or clay tablet, but written upon it is any decrees of fate that the gods make, and so they can presumably be written altered or erased by the holder of the tablet. Though, honestly, they never really go into too much detail about the artifact itself, focusing mainly on who is holding it as a proxy for who has ultimate universal power. Our story today, again, one which exists in multiple versions and is in many places quite fragmented, is typically called Ninurta and the Tablet of Destinies, because that's a cool name. Our most complete copy of the tale actually begins with a little introduction, another sign of increased maturity among recorded stories, or perhaps just better recording, of the existing oral traditions, which is part of why, even though we have references to this story from much earlier, it fits quite well to be discussed here in the Middle Bronze Age period. It begins... I sing of the superb son of the king of the populated lands. Already interesting, since it implies that Enlil, who is now increasingly called Elil, does not actually rule over the unpopulated and barbarous mountains and deserts. But anyway, I praise superb Ninurta, son of Mami, the powerful god Enlil's son, Eker's child. Eker being the Temple of Enlil, leader of the Anunnaki, which tells us this copy comes from somewhere that worshipped Ninurta specifically, and not Babylon itself, which would have considered Marduk the leader, and focus of the Eninu. I have no idea what the Eninu is. Who waters cattle pens, gardens and ponds in country and town. 
Ninurta was an agricultural deity. Flood wave of battles, who darkens the sash of the warrior with blood and a god of war. The fiercest Galu demons fear his attack. Listen to this praise of the powerful one's strength, who subdued and bound the mountain of stones in his fury, this being the tale we told in the previous episode of Ninurta, and who slew the bull man inside the sea this being a tale completely lost to us except for this reference, which just goes to show we have lost so much of what once was. Strong warrior who slays with his weapon, powerful warrior who is quick to form the battle array. Our tale begins properly in a time early in creation, when there had been no throne created for the lesser gods, the Igigi, and when the two rivers had been dug out but not yet filled with water. One day, the lesser gods all gather round Enlil, king of the gods, for a report. They report that in the distant mountains, someone has given birth to a bird monster called the Anzu bird. Extensive details are given, but only survive in a very fragmentary state, so we know that his beak is like a saw, and either his skin or his feathers are like eleven coats of armor. But actually, we've already met the Anzu in a previous tale, all the way back in episode 2, Lugalbanda's Adventures, so we know that in addition to having a fearsome shriek and magical powers, it is also a decently intelligent creature, capable of being reasoned with. Not that reasoning with anyone is actually the point of this story. Now, since this Anzu bird had been born, it needed to be assigned a fate, Enlil's particular specialty. Since the Anzu was perhaps at least semi-divine, the Anzu was appointed to guard Enlil's holy temple. The giant bird creature took up the task without complaint, and each day he saw the gods bathing in holy water. He saw Enlil exercising his holy power, he saw all the wealth and trappings of power that the high gods surrounded himself with, and an idea formed in his little bird brain. Why shouldn't I have all this? Anzu wondered to himself. Why can't I be surrounded by wealth all the time and command the lesser gods to do whatever I want? And after considering the issue for a while, he can't think of any reason why he shouldn't be the one in charge of everything. And so, one day, Enlil goes to take a bath. As one would expect, he removes his clothes and even his precious Tablet of Destinies and leaves it all on a bench. Once Enlil is in the water, Anzu, who has been waiting for this moment, sprints to the Tablet, grabs it, and flies away before anyone can react. Now, Anzu is in physical possession of the Tablet of Destinies and the power of kingship called Enlil power in many stories. It's interesting to think what he could have done with this power, but... Whatever the case, it appears that he does not make extensive use of the power, or at least not to its full extent. Is he unable to because there's some bloodline component to kingship in the Mesopotamian imagination? Or does Anzu simply lack the desire or ability to become a full king in his own right? The matter can be debated in either direction, because what our giant bird monster actually does is flee into a cave somewhere in a mountain and hoards his treasure like a dragon. The holy rites of the temples begin to fail in the absence of the tablet, and the radiance of heaven fades. Enlil was completely dumbstruck by this, completely unable to function, not so much from the loss of power as from shame and shock that it happened at all. 
So his father An takes up the reins for a moment, calling out to all the gods, saying that whoever fixed this problem would be doing all of heaven a favor and reap great fame. But he gets no takers, so he starts calling out the major gods one by one. He starts with his son, Adad, the storm god, and apparently also the controller of canals, saying, Powerful, ferocious Adad, your strike cannot be deflected. You strike with your lightning, and your name will be great in our assembly of gods. You will have no rival, and your shrines and temples will multiply in the land. Show your prowess to the gods, and your name shall be powerful. But Adad rebuked his father, saying, Who would ever rush off to some inaccessible mountain to do this? No one among the gods can be Anzu's conqueror, for now he has the Tablet of Destinies. He has the gods' power to simply speak and for things to occur. He could, with a single word, turn any attacker to clay. No, I will not make this expedition, he said as he turned away. An then called to Gera with similar language, calling upon him to use his command over fire to defeat the Anzu. But Gera must have heard Adad because he refuses with the exact same speech. They then call Shara, a son of Ishtar, a minor god of battle, to attack the Anzu bird with his weapons of war, but he too declines. Note here the similarity between this and all the gods who don't want to attack Tiamat in the Enuma Elish, as well as the fact that these are mostly Akkadian or Babylonian deities being called up, both of which are key factors in the dating of this version of the work. In any case, with pretty much everyone they turn to flaking out on them, the great gods begin to despair of ever fixing this, and the lesser gods grew troubled. And so, as usual, it fell to Ea, god of wisdom, to come up with a plan. He said to An, Give me the authority to choose the warrior, and I will ensure that the task is accomplished. Seeing no alternative, An assented, and Ea called for the goddess Mami to come before the council of gods. This is a mothering goddess, a ruler of childbirth, and actually, in many of the oldest writings, was considered one of the seven high gods, though by the time of this tale is written, she's fallen out just a bit to be one of the Anunnaki, with a middling position among the 60 most exalted gods. Once she arrives in the council chamber, pretty much without preamble, Ea declares that from this point on, Mami shall also be known as Belit Ili, mother of the gods themselves. Her temples and shrines shall multiply, and her position shall be deeply honored among the gods. Just with your exalted position, the other gods ask that you compel your beloved Ninurta to go and fight the Anzu bird with his mighty strength. Bella Ili listened to Ea's deal, in which Ninurta would risk his life and she would reap rewards and agreed on the spot. So she brought her son to the council chamber and instructed him that now that she was the mother of all the gods, she was responsible for the cosmic order, and that cosmic order had been disrupted by the Anzu bird. She commands him then, saying, Make a path, fix the hour, let dawn come for the gods whom I created. Muster your devastating battle force, make your evil winds flash as they march over him. Capture the soaring Anzu and inundate the earth which I created. Wreck his dwelling. She emphasizes multiple times in this speech that 
she created the Earth. But it's really hard to tell if this is her speaking metaphorically in her new role as Mother Goddess, or if she's working off yet another Mesopotamian creation myth. She continues with her commands, though, saying, Let terror thunder above him. Let fear of your battle force shake in him. Make the devastating whirlwind rise against him. Set your arrow in the bow coated with poison. Your form must keep changing like a Galu demon. Send out a fog that he cannot recognize your features. Make your rays proceed above him. Make a high attacking leap. Have a glare more powerful than Shamash the sun generates. May daylight turn to darkness for him. Seize him by the throat. Conquer Anzu and let the winds bring his feathers as good news. Rush the mountain pastures and slit the throat of wicked Anzu. Then shall kingship enter the occur again. Then shall rights return to your father. Then surely shall your shrines and cult centers be created all over the four quarters of the earth. Show your prowess to the gods, and your name shall be powerful. The warrior, as he listened to his mother's words, hunched his back in trepidation and went into hiding. But soon enough, he was coaxed out of his fear and mustered out a battle array for war, leading the seven winds into battle. He marched to the mountainside and sought out the Anzu bird. Anzu saw him coming and roared in fury, I have taken the powers, rituals, and place of the gods. Who do you think you are to challenge me now? Give me your reason for being here. Ninurta answered with the righteousness of a hero on a quest, announcing that he is the avenger of the gods, and he has come to battle against this foul bird and trample upon him. Anzu listened and screamed at him in wordless response. Darkness fell over the mountain, blotting out the sun. The lightning of the storm god roared in harmony with the beast's leonine shrieks. The god and the god beast towered over a battlefield on which was arrayed countless men who joined in battle, their armor soaking in the blood of their fellow men. The force of the mortal battle played between the two giants, each lending power to their side. Seeing an opening, Brave Ninurta drew his heavy bow and loosed an arrow at the creature's exposed breast. But midway through its flight, the arrow halted and began to move in reverse direction. The Anzu cried out commands, and the arrow disassembled itself, turning by divine decree back in time. The shaft returned to the reed thicket from whence it had came. The bow returns to the tree it had been carved from. The bowstring returns to the guts of the ram they had been spun from, and the feathers of the arrow shaft sped through the air to fasten back on the bird they had once fallen off of. This was the power of the Tablet of Destinies, and upon seeing it, the entire battlefield fell silent in awe. Each army pulled back a short distance, and the Anzu remained uncaught and unbowed. Ninurta called out to his minister, the companion that accompanies each god, who in this case is Shar-Ur, his battle mace. He commanded Shar-Ur to deliver a message to Ea, saying that they had engaged in battle with the Anzu's army and surrounded the isolated mountain, but the bird is unlocking the power of the Tablet of Destinies and has weaponized time itself, becoming invulnerable to arrows. The battle is halted for the moment, and we seek your guidance, O God of Wisdom. 
Sha'ur flew back to the gods who waited in the Akur in Nippur and relayed the message. Ea listened, then replied that Sha'ur should bring the following message back to Ninurta. Do not pause the battle. Press your advantage. Keep fighting until the bird is exhausted and begins to shed feathers. When this happens, fire arrows to distract him, but follow each arrow with a Tilpanu weapon. We don't know precisely what a Tilpanu weapon is, but Ninurta was to throw his Tilpanu at the pinion feathers and sever them left and right, ruining the bird's flight. Then, Ea concluded, you will have your opportunity. Sha'ur returned to the camp just as it was time for battle to resume the next day, and relayed Ea's advice. Ninurta listened carefully and nodded, loading up on arrows and Tilpanu weapons for the battle to come. And when the armies clashed that morning, it was devastating. Rising from the exerting bodies was a heat wave so strong it dulled the minds of the mortal soldiers as their world descended into heat and noise and confusion and motion, hacking the enemy in front and being pressed and jostled from all sides. A tempest came down as Ninurta again launched the seven winds into the fray, and even his allies could barely keep their feet. Weapons rose and fell, slick with sweat and blood. Andrew grew weary in the conflict and began to shed his feathers, even his crucial flight pinions. And as the bases of his primary feathers were revealed, Ninurta the warrior and hunter sprang into action. He loosed a hail of arrows, each aimed precisely at vital organs and major arteries. The exhausted Anzu called the arrows back in time to their origins, but either didn't notice the follow-up weapons or disregarded them because they weren't hurtling towards his center of mass. Either way, they hit home, severing his flight feathers. The bird screamed, Kapi, kapi, which means, my wing, my wing, as aerodynamics began to fail him. And just as the Anzu looked back up to his attacker to scream some curse, an arrow struck home, passing clean through his heart. Lifeblood streamed from his chest and strength left the Anzu bird, dropping him finally to the hard rock of the mountain. The enemy army was swept up pretty quickly after that, and the lands they had conquered were put to the torch. The rebel mountains were laid low, and their farmlands were inundated with blood in an insatiable victory orgy slash unstoppable raiding party. The god's rage fell hard upon the people and the land which had dared oppose him. Pretty normal stuff for Ninurta. And most important of all, Ninurta recovered the Tablet of Destinies. As a sign, he cast the Anzu's feathers to the winds, and they were carried to the Council of the Gods. Dagan, a fertility god whose cult actually stretched all the way to Canaan, was on lookout and spotted the sign. He called to the other gods, and a cry of relief rose in the council hall. Enlil called to his minister Nusker, and gave him a message for Ninurta. Nusker listened to the message, then sped over to the triumphant hero in the middle of his victory party. The text is a bit damaged, but it seems that Nusker was a bit rude and sort of killed the party's buzz. Ninurta called out to the party crasher, saying, Why have you come here so aggressively? Nusker gave his message, and then there's more tablet damage, a substantial chunk of the story missing here. But Nusker seems to have ordered Ninurta back to the Akur to receive praise for slaying the Anzu. 
he appears to have returned obediently and been given tremendous, though not very readable, praise for the rest of the tablet. At some point, we assume, he returned the Tablet of Destinies to Enlil, but again, we can't know if there was any drama surrounding that, or simply more praise heaped upon praise. And that would be the end of it. But we have another story that immediately follows this one. A story that is actually much older than any of our surviving copies of Ninurta and the Tablet of Destinies. This story called Ninurta and the Turtle, is also missing parts from the beginning and end, but from it we can reconstruct a few interesting differences. In this version, Ninurta has taken a baby Anzu bird from the nest after slaying the parent. Additionally, instead of returning to the Akur, Temple of Enlil in Nippur, he's returned to the Abzu Temple of Ea, likely in the city of Eridu. When the readable part of the tablet begins, we have the tail end of the Anzu Chick's story. It seems that, for a time, the baby bird held the tablet in safekeeping for his father, and when the course of the battle made the young bird drop the tablet, the powers of Enlilship passed smoothly back to the temples of the true gods. Ninurta is in shock at hearing this story, apparently only now discovering what had happened to the tablet which had vanished following the end of the battle in this version. Ninurta cries out that he had fought so hard, yet didn't get a chance to hold the powers of the Tablet of Destinies. He regrets that he will not be able to exercise that authority, and will not be able to be the master of the highest temples. But with this disappointment, he walks over to the room where Ea is waiting to meet with him. Ea, of course, heard all this, though being the cleverest of the gods, he holds his cards close to his chest. Ea honors Ninurta, insisting, No other god would have been able to act as quickly and skillfully as you, and this baby bird you have brought home as a war trophy will allow you to always put your foot on the neck of an Anzu. I pray the gods will give you your just rewards and praise you for your great victory. May Enlil give you whatever you command. May An proclaim you in his seat of honor. I myself am dedicating a monthly tribute to you from my own shrine. And Ea's fulsome praise continued in that vein. But inwardly, Ninurta had been bitten by ambition, and the grand words of the other gods failed to satisfy him. Ea, after all, was weak to flattery, and so imagined that anyone could be smoothed over with soothing words. But Ninurta was a man of action, no, a god of action, and in his heart he began to imagine grand plans. Grand and rebellious plans. He tried to keep these dark thoughts from his face, but so deep was he in thought that the air around him darkened and his skin yellowed. Apparently, yellowing skin is how they referred to a face going pale, and clever Ea knew what the young warrior was thinking. With Ninurta deep in thought, Ea suddenly cast a flooding storm in the temple. The rain was so thick that Ninurta could barely see in front of him, and he struck his mace at the first thing he saw, which happened to be Ea's minister Isimud. The minister survived the first blow and fled down a path that had been carefully prepared by his master, drawing him to a certain spot. When the minister disappeared from sight in the heavy torrent of storm rain, Ea's voice magically pierced through the noise of the downpour, guiding Ninurta ever closer. 
Aya had crafted the turtle, a giant snapping turtle twice the size of a man, and positioned him behind a doorway. As Ninurta passed through the doorway, the turtle snapped at Ninurta's ankle, grabbing him tight. With the warrior god caught, Aya ended the storm suddenly and revealed himself standing on a platform above Ninurta. The hero swore, perplexed at the situation, but before he could try and free himself, the turtle began to dig. It dug with supernatural speed, and before he knew it, both Ninurta and the turtle were at the bottom of a deep hole, with the turtle still gnawing at his ankle. Let me out, he shouted, but Aya folded his arms as he peered down the deep hole and said, You were planning to rebel, planning to kill me. You get a little bit of praise and suddenly develop an inflated opinion of yourself. Now you are at the bottom of a hole, getting nibbled on by a turtle. What is it your ambition has wrought? So soon after facing a rebel yourself, you would rebel again. In the deep mountains, you caused endless destruction, but how will you escape from this hole now? We don't actually know how Ninurta escapes, because the tablet ends with a discussion of Ninmena, probably a name of Ninhursag, finding out about her son Ninurta's plight. Wait, 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 wasn't he just the son of Mammy last story? Yeah. But remember, this thing about family trees, they're an absolute mess in the chaos and confusion of a Mesopotamian myth spread out over centuries and many different cities. Anyway, she finds out and begins to curse Ea angrily, but that is the end of the tablet, and all we know about the story of Ninurta and the turtle. Most likely, he comes to see that his ambition was mistaken, and upon offering contrition, is let out of the hole and rejoins divine society in good standing, or something to that effect. Though these stories have often surprised translators who presume the conclusion of a story only to find another fun twist later on with some more archaeology. But with this story, we can see why Ninurta was so popular. Who doesn't love a good action hero standing up and fighting his way through problems? Young boys would grow up pretending to be mighty warrior Ninurta, and when they grew out to be young men called up for military service, they would continue to hold the fantasy in their hearts, even if maybe they didn't admit it like they had at younger ages. Additionally, we can see in following the Tablet of Destinies over these last two episodes a lot of detail about the Mesopotamian conception of kingship and godhood, especially the recognition that true power is the king's power, that is, the ability to say a thing and have it occur, either thanks to legions of slaves or thanks to magical god powers. But before I go... There is one more story that has to get told with Ninurta. It's called Ninurta and the Seven Demons, but honestly it goes by multiple names and it isn't really so much a story as a storytelling tradition. Part of the problem is that we don't actually have a copy of a story called Ninurta and the Seven Demons. Instead, we have references in other stories and in hymns to a story or likely a compilation of tales that go by this title. This has led some to believe that there was not actually any story behind it, but rather that it was just common to boast that Ninurta had defeated lots of enemies. 
but most believe that there was actually some sort of story, probably in a form similar to the Twelve Labors of Hercules, in which Ninurta would go on seven adventures and rack up seven kills. But here again, we run into problems when talking about this. It is apparently very well known that Ninurta slew the seven demons. Seriously, references are absolutely everywhere, but none of our sources can seem to agree what those seven demons were. Our three best lists come from the Lugal-e, Ninurta's return to Nippur, and a cylinder inscribed by the Lagashite king Gudea from the tail end of the Dark Age. Those first two stories were actually covered in the previous episode on Ninurta. However, each of these three actually lists 11 monsters slain by Ninurta, and when you put the three lists together, we actually have 20 unique monsters named across the three lists. Then when you add in passing mentions from other texts, the modern scholar Amar Annas counts a full 30 identifiable monsters claimed to have been killed by Ninurta. To list them all real quick, there was the... Cow monsters, bull monsters, both of which are probably generic terms for male and female monsters, the Ansu bird, the horned snake, the Galu demon, a common sort of demon for which no exact translation exists in English except perhaps the word demon itself, the scorpion man, the bison man, the mermaid and the fish man, the hairy hero, the king of date palms, the boat of Meluha, possibly referring to pirates from Oman, the savage sea snake, the big serpent or perhaps dragon, the seven-headed serpent, which is the ancestor of the Greek Hydra legend, the mineral gypsum, a bison head, which may be a trophy from the bison man, a sag-ar, translation unclear, the minor god Saman Anna, which sounds like Santa Anna, who was defeated by the Texican army at San Jacinto, a mountain of stones, likely referring to the army of the Asag demon, a six-headed wild ram, a giant weather beast, the so-called mighty demon, a savage dog, a lion or lion man, depending on how you translate it, a seven-headed hero, a monster made of copper, a venomous snake, and another giant serpent. That is quite the list, and it seems likely that every single one of them had a story behind it, even if we've lost most of them. And quite possibly, there were even more in circulation as less official monsters in other cities whose records did not survive quite so well. It seems likely that there was a rich tradition across centuries and empires in all the various cities of Mesopotamia of the hero Ninurta traveling the world and vanquishing all manner of monsters in a manner not unlike the Superman legends of today. Nowadays, Superman has been around for nearly a hundred years with dozens of writers, and sometimes you see common villains reused over and over again because the story of their defeat is quite popular. And sometimes you see writers inventing all new villains for him to defeat in new and interesting ways. It seems likely that the exact same thing was occurring here, and just as how 4,000 years from now, the historians might be able to recount a few fragments of a battle against Lex Luthor and mentions of a poorly understood brainiac doomsday and bizarro, so too have we lost the richness and depth of the Ninurta legend. 
Still, there is a lot we can extract just from what we have, such as Ninurta as a cultural model for a warrior that resonated throughout all society, clearly inspiring both the young boys in the streets dreaming of becoming infantrymen for their cities or empire, and the king looking for a model of a just warrior to pattern themselves after. When later Babylonian and Assyrian rulers came to decorate their palaces with statues of exotic beasts and chimeras, it was perhaps a way of linking themselves to the victories of Ninurta the Great Hunter, showing that they too had a collection of trophies acquired from the conquest of distant places. Something that has sat beneath the surface but gone unmentioned so far in the show is the mention in hymns of Ninurta possessing the qualities of a tree in terms of sturdiness. This, this also links him to kingship, as a throne in Akkadian culture is linked to the cosmic tree, with its roots in the Abzu, an idea later translated into the Jewish idea of Torah as the tree of life which rules over the world. It is all very abstract and metaphorical, but there truly are depths to Ninurta that can be delved into if one has the time and patience and all the academic journal subscriptions. I mention this all as a long-winded way of saying that sometimes what we have in Mesopotamian history can seem a bit shallow, or some of these stories a bit sensationalist, and the corpus of texts can start to seem a bit small. After all, this is likely the last episode that I'm going to be able to devote to Ninurta unless I start delving into hymns as a favor to the neo-pagan listeners out there. But their life and their culture was just as full as ours. And the worst parts of this podcast is dashing through centuries in a few short episodes as if barely 30 minutes worth of interesting stuff occurred there. And so... Just keep in mind that what I can recount to you here on the Oldest Stories podcast is just a sampling of what was produced and lost over the millennia. But for now, we're going to transition from gods to kings with the stories of the oldest humans in history. Even though it will seem like we are going back in time, actually we will see that many of these stories don't arise until the Semitic storytellers, or at least they don't appear in the record until now. Still, though they aren't as ancient in every case as Gilgamesh or other Sumerian myths, they still deal with pervasive themes of mortality and godhood. So join me next time as we look at Adapa and Etana, ancient men who challenged the order of heaven and inspired later Babylonian culture and religious rites. Thank you for listening. <laughs>